All right, I'm going to call Emily Schrock up today to read. We are in Acts chapter 14, verses 1 to 20. And if you could, why don't you please stand for the reading of God's word. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against their brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who had bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with, the ru- with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystria and Derby, the cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright onto your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowds had saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the nature with you, of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went out with Barnabas to Derbe. Emily, you may be seated. Very good. An exciting story. All right. You know, the older I get, and the more people I meet, and the longer I've been in ministry, the more impressed I am with the necessity of knowing a person's story or their background. The background of their upbringing, what has happened to them, what has been done to them, the voices that they've listened to through their lives, what nationality their ancestors come from, what their parents and grandparents were like, what kind of folklore shaped their worldview. And as in Scripture, context determines meaning, right? The context of a person's life and story determines the meaning of their actions and even the words that they use. The context of an individual's life most certainly determines that individual's or that person's or even a people group's reactions to what happens around them. And today's story presents us with people from two different cities. So there's Iconium, And we find a large Jewish presence with Greeks who knew about the Jewish God. In Iconium, Paul was able to preach in the Jewish synagogue with a crowd that was familiar with the Hebrew scriptures and the God of the Old Testament. 
And then Paul fled to Lystra where he spoke to a pagan, idol-worshipping, backwater city who had little to no familiarity with the God of the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures. So in one city, the people heard the message of Jesus and they saw the miracles and attempted to mistreat and stone Paul and Barnabas. And then in the other city, the people heard the same message of Jesus and saw the same miracles and they attempted to worship Paul and Barnabas. And those are two very different responses to the same message and the same messengers. So how can that be, right? In both places, Paul and Barnabas acted in kindness and in love. They brought truth into the darkness of the lives of the people. They did signs and wonders, healings and exorcisms. Everything they did and said was for the benefit and the good of the people so that they would repent and turn to Jesus in faith. And Paul says this in Romans chapter 2, verse 4. God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. So what they did was in order to bring people to repentance and into a, a relationship with God. God in his grace and his kindness sent Paul and Barnabas to these cities in order to offer his gift of salvation to the Jews and the Gentiles. Unfortunately, the unbelieving Jews and Gentiles attempted to mistreat Paul in one place and attempted to worship him in another. And neither of these responses was what was hoped for. So we're going to take a look at this today. So the point number one in your outline is that these crowds attempted to mistreat Paul at Iconium. So chapter 14, verse 1 to 7, I'm going to read again real quickly here. Now at Iconium they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. And so we see there's two responses to the gospel, right? There's, we've been saying this all through the book of Acts. There's acceptance and there's rejection. Acceptance. So Luke, the author of Acts, says that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. And this is a response that God desires. This is what his kindness toward us in Jesus Christ is intended to produce. Repentance and belief in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. Verse 2, but the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to his word, to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. So the other response there's acceptance and then there's rejection. So the unbelieving Jews stirred up the poison and poisoned the minds of these Gentiles that were in the city. And Luke focuses this account on the negative responses of the two crowds, both in Lystra and in Iconium. And so what is, uh, so that's what we're going to be looking at this morning, all right? So these unbelievers were stirring up verbally poisonous campaign against Paul and Barnabas. This was a verbal campaign to contradict the teaching that they were giving around the city, to spread lies concerning who they were and what they were proclaiming, to censor out their voices from the synagogue and the public spaces. This is happening today, too, right here in our own time, in our own country. Those who reject the gospel are stirring up other unbelievers and poisoning their minds concerning those who follow Jesus and the message of salvation that we preach. They call us unloving for sharing the truth that we are all sinners. They call us exclusionists for proclaiming that Jesus is the only way to heaven. They call us judgmental for living according to the standards in God's word. They call us ignorant for following an archaic and ancient book. They call us naive for believing in God and not in science. They call us a danger for gathering in person. We've heard it all throughout the last couple of years. What did Paul and Barnabas do in response to this kind of 
poisonous campaign against them? What did they do in the face of antagonistic, op- uh, oppositionist unbelief? All right? So we're going to look at that. So what did they do in the presence of antagonistic unbelief? Well, in verse 3, it says that they remained for a long time. The verbally poisonous opposition did not stop them and did not send them fleeing. It actually encouraged them to remain. So they remained for the sake of those who believed already and for the sake of those who were yet going to believe. They remained to lovingly serve and to speak the truth of Jesus. And it says that they remained for a long time. The contradictions and the opposition and the attempts to silence them didn't discourage them from lovingly ministering to the people. In fact, the author, Luke, uses the word so or therefore at the beginning of verse 3, if you look. And so it's like because of this opposition, they remained for a long time. And this suggests that they did not want the opposition to be successful. They did not want the gospel to be silenced. They did not want the truth of God's word to be distorted. And a long time suggests that the missionaries and the new disciples there wrestled against the principalities and powers who wanted to silence them in that city for at least many months. That's what he means by a long time. So their faith was tough. They didn't give up at the first sign of difficulty or at the first person who mocked them or ridiculed them. They stayed for a long time. And they were doing signs and wonders among them. So they healed and they cast out demons and they ministered to the people of Iconium. They remained for a long time doing good to the people in the name of Jesus. They were kind and loving and gracious and they spoke truth. You know, faithfulness to Jesus speaks volumes to a lost world. Remaining and ministering in the face of opposition actually unsettles the opposition. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27-28, Paul says this about being opposed. He says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come or I'm absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now listen, and not frightened by anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. That's what Paul said in the book of Philippians. So when disciples of Jesus gather together and love one another and minister in kindness to the people around them in the name of Jesus and lovingly witness to others of Jesus' saving grace in their lives without being frightened by those who may oppose and contradict or malign or mistreat them, the faithfulness of those disciples is a sign to the unsaved of their destruction, right? But also, it's also an invitation It's an invitation to repent and believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins and the blessing of being in this peaceful and purposeful family of God. The kindness of God is meant to lead us to repentance. And so they remained for a long time. And the verbal censorship and contradiction and lies did not silence them. It only emboldened them to speak more. And it says that they spoke For the sake of those who believed already and for the sake of those who were yet going to believe, they spoke the truth of the gospel. They spoke the word of God, the the way of Jesus. They faithfully witnessed to the power of the gospel of Jesus to change lives. They continued to preach forgiveness of sins through faith in Jesus. They continued to speak God's love and demonstrate it through their actions. They remained and they spoke the truth in love. They spoke the truth 
of the love of Jesus into the darkness and the opposition in the city in which they lived. And says that they were speaking boldly for the Lord. The poisoned minds, I'm sure, were ridiculing the Christians, laughing at them, criticizing them, making fun of them, lying about them, trying to ruin their reputation, right? But the early church did not back down. They did not let the bullying tactics of their opponents weaken their faith. They kept their eyes on Jesus and proclaimed his goodness into the evil darkness that was around them. Now, we learned a few weeks ago that Jesus never calls us to something that he doesn't equip us to do. Remember that? And, and he never commands us to do anything that he doesn't promise that he will fulfill. And as the early church continued to be bold witnesses for Jesus, proclaiming that he died and rose to save and rescue them from sin, the Holy Spirit emboldened their pro- or, or empowered their bold proclamation. It says that God bore witness to the word of his grace through signs and wonders. Now, I love that, that phrase, word of his grace. The word is Jesus, right? In the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God. And his grace, the word of his grace, his grace is God's undeserved gift of kindness. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, right? God himself bore witness to his own gracious gift of his son, Jesus, through the signs and wonders that were happening by the apostles, For God, the gospel is not an afterthought. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection isn't just a story that some people need to hear. It is the story that all people need to hear. God himself bears witness to the truthfulness of the gospel through signs. And he vindicated his witnesses through wonders. And God defended the truthfulness of the message of Jesus by doing wonders at the hands of the apostles. God did things that were unexplainable, unscientific, unpredictable in order to strengthen the message of his gospel. And that's how God works. But just because God bore witness to the word of his grace and vindicated his witness through signs and wonders, did it all turn out rosy and peachy and everyone come to faith in the end? Not really. Did the whole city place their faith in Jesus? No. Were the rulers of the city, the governing officials, there to protect them? No. Did peace and prosperity become the climate of that city and that church? No. In fact, it was quite the opposite. The city was divided and violence erupted. There was division. If you look in verse 4, the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe. So the people of the city were divided. They were not divided regarding ethnicity or color or political affiliation. They were divided on how to respond to these Christians and this proclamation. And we see in this passage, and it plays out in many contexts around the world, a division among unsaved as to how to regard Christians. And I call these two camps selfish admiration or vehement hate, all right? There's selfish admiration. Some, though they may reject the gospel of Jesus, may tolerate Christians because of the good things that they bring to the table. The people of Iconium were recipients of the signs and the wonders. They most likely were being healed and there was exorcisms happening. So they received the benefits and the blessings of having the Christians around them. So we might not agree with them, 
and we don't believe in this ridiculous claims that they have, but why get rid of them? They bring good things, so let's tolerate them, right? The other response is vehement hate. Some cannot stand the Christian teachings, the way of Jesus, the truth of God's word, and these people do not see any good with having Christians around, right? They are threatened by the gospel message. They want to stamp it out. They fight against God and his word of grace. So when we, we lived overseas, we and our co-workers had this happen in our tribes. We saw these two responses, right? The village was asking for missionaries to come teach them the word of God, and we gladly accepted this invitation. We loved them. We became friends with them. We shared possessions with them. We took care of the medical needs, and they were happy to receive the benefits and the blessings of having Christians around them. But when the teaching of Jesus directly confronted their demonic spirit worship— they understood that their way of life was being threatened. And when people's way of life is threatened, they don't really like that, right? And this was when the death threats began to surface and meetings about how to deal with us and how to silence us began to take place and rumors and accusations began to spread. People began to hate us. And we will see this regular pattern throughout the book of Acts. The vehement haters of Paul and Barnabas, one-time enemies uh, of themselves, joined ranks to mistreat Paul and Barnabas. And in this situation, Jews and Gentiles plotted together with the governing rulers to mistreat the missionaries. They plotted to stone them. Now again, we read that phrase, and we read about their response, and we're like, yeah, they plotted to stone them, right? But think about it in today's, like, it's so violent, right? It's so over the top, so primitive. Who stones people, right? And to think that the rulers joined in on the violence, the rulers were part and parcel to this. Our evolved society would never do anything like this, would we? No. <laughs> yeah, see, you're right. You're tracking with me. I would not be so sure after what we've seen. Violence is in our human nature. It is one of the sins that God's Spirit changes in us after we believe. God's Spirit produces peace and compassion in place of violence and hate. That's why we need Jesus. Now, the situation had changed. It went from verbal opposition now to a life-threatening physical opposition. And so what do we do in the face of life-threatening physical opposition? Paul and Barnabas and company learned of the plot. This, this detail tells us that they had their antenna up. They were aware of what was going on around them. They saw the division. They heard the whispers of the violence. And Paul and Barnabas were bold and uh, but they were not stubbornly stupid. They acted according to the wisdom that God's Spirit gave them, and this is demonstrated by the fact that they left town. They fled to Lystra. They did not dig their heels in to the point of death. They did not seek martyrdom. They wisely sought for ways to continue to be witnesses for Jesus. And all through the book of Acts, we're going to see that the disciples and the apostles were fleeing for their lives if the opportunity presented itself. Running and fleeing is not a bad thing. It is not a cowardly thing. It is a wise thing to do. And if one has a family, it's the loving thing to do. And this story proves that running can be actually the bold thing to do. For even though they fled to another place, in verse 7, Paul and Barnabas and company continued to preach the gospel. So opposition and threats and plots and persecution and fleeing are not excuses to stop preaching 
the gospel of Jesus. Fleeing to another city, state, or country is not an excuse to stop proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. Opposition, plots, threats, persecution, all that is what God actually used in the book of Acts and what he uses to propel the witness of Jesus into the world. The opposition difficulties were the very situations which spurred the believers to spread the gospel of Jesus into places of most need. And I've said it before, some, some of us don't like this, but the freedom of speech is not what causes God's word to spread. The Spirit of God empowering his people to be bold witnesses of Jesus is what causes God's word to spread. We don't need to fight for the freedom of speech. Jesus has already given us the freedom to speak, the command to speak, the power to speak about him. His Spirit will empower us boldly to speak the gospel of Jesus wherever we are in whatever context we find ourselves. Faithfully, lovingly, compassionately. And those places are the places that need to hear of Jesus the most. And that is what they did. Paul and Barnabas fled and they continued to preach in Lystra. So now we get to Lystra in verse 8 and following. But why is the response in Lystra so much different than the response in Iconium? Because, as I mentioned earlier, context is everything, okay? The people of Lystra had a folklore, legend, or a myth that was recorded by the poet Ovid, okay? Have you ever heard of Ovid? He was a Roman poet. It went something like this, okay? I'm not a poet. I'm just going to tell you the story in my own words. But it went like this. The Greek gods Zeus and Hermes took the form of men, and they came to a town long ago. They were looking for good people to house them and feed them. They were testing the people of this town. And they visited home after home after home, and eventually everybody shut them out. They weren't welcomed. Not one home would accept them. Eventually, the two Greek gods happened upon a thatched roof hut on the outskirts of the town, inhabited by an old man and an old woman. These two did not have much to offer, but they invited the guests in. They gave them lodging, the best dinner that they could, and showed them kindness. And Zeus and Hermes then revealed to the old couple that they were gods in the flesh, right? And as they were leaving the village, they rewarded the couple by turning their thatched roof house into an ornate temple, and the two of them were transformed into these wonderful priests and priestesses, right? But in response to the village's rejection, the peop- uh, 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 those people, the Zeus and Hermes, destroyed their whole village with a flood. This is a folklore. I don't believe it's true, but we, knowing stories like this is important because the moral of the story is what? Don't fail to show homage to the gods if they ever come in human form again. Why? Because if you do, you will be destroyed. So that's what they lived under. Legends form the boundaries of meaning for interpreting the circumstances that happen to people. Stories from the past set the context for what people do and how they think in the present. And those boundaries of meaning and sources of interpretation do not change in an instant unless the Spirit of God works a miracle. And this legend in Lystra greatly influenced how the people of that city reacted to Paul and Barnabas. So look at verse 8. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him, seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. 
All right? So the miracle. Paul saw that the man had faith to be healed, and so Paul, seeing the opportunity to demonstrate the power of Jesus and to authenticate the authority of the gospel of Jesus, with its power to save, he heals this man right there on the spot. And here's where the cultural background and the folklore and the legend and the history collide with the truth and the power of God. And the people reverted immediately to what they knew. So the response, right? They interpreted what happened in light of their worldview. Look at the rest of verse 11. The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. So they interpreted what happened in light of their worldview, their cultural legend. Oh my goodness, we didn't see, how did we not see this before, right? Two men preaching about a God who came in human form. They are eloquent. They are different than us. They showed up without us asking. These two men are powerful. They just healed someone. These are all hints. They have been testing us to see if we're paying attention, to see if we will ignore them like the village did long ago or if we'll honor them like the couple did. The gods have come down to us again in the likeness of men. We must honor them or we will be destroyed. Hurry, we need to make up for lost time. We don't want them to be upset with us. And they assign names to them of the deities, right? Barnabas they called Zeus, the chief god of the Greeks and, the god, and Greek gods and goddesses. Paul they called Hermes because he was the main speaker and Hermes was known as a speaker. And these were the two gods who had supposedly visited them long ago in this exact same spot, Right? The people did not want to be destroyed and they wanted to receive more of the miraculous blessings from these gods. And so they prepared to offer sacrifices to them. They already had a temple to Zeus at the city gate, the perfect place to bring an offering to him. And some, man, some men run out into the city and they start gathering oxen to bring to the gate. Some women and children run into the fields and they gather flowers and they quickly tie them together in garlands and some threw them in the streets and the pathways. And then others began to prepare a great feast and a meal and celebration of these gods that visited them. And they were all speaking in Lyconian. This was their native tongue. And this is why Paul and Barnabas didn't really know what was going on at first. They could, under, they could not understand what was being said. And there's nothing more unsettling and unnerving than being in an excited crowd of people and being the outsiders and seeing all this commotion and not knowing what they're saying. And here Paul and Barnabas saw what was going on and they begin to put two and two together. And you see in primitive cultures, and even in ours sometimes, flowers and garlands around the neck are a sign of honor and worship. And they're given as a gift to someone of high standing. In primitive cultures, flowers are used in the worship of spirits and gods. And Paul and Barnabas saw this and they quickly went to work to stop it. Paul and Barnabas were ambassadors of Jesus. They did not want this situation to get out of hand or these people could be mixed up for life. And so they tore their garments as signs of agitation and grief and they rushed in the crowd and they began to correct the crowd. And let's listen to their correction. Verse 15. Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave them without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Why are you doing these things? 
Please don't. You don't understand. We are men like you. We are not gods come in the flesh. We are human like the rest of you. Frail, weak, human. We are simply here to bring you good news. And, and here is that good news. Turn from these vain things, referring to their false idols, to the living God. Turn to the living God who made heaven and earth and the sea and the stars and, and all that you see. He is way more powerful than Zeus and Hermes. Now, do you find it interesting that Paul does not mention forgiveness or salvation or even Jesus? He's simply attempting to get the people to turn from their idols to the living God. Now, God condemns idolatry because it diminishes God from the great and awesome God that he is to something that humans can make and something that's even less than human, right, because we can make it. And thus, idolatry puts humans in the driver's seat in control of this God that they make. And the true God doesn't stand for that. He calls people to turn from their worthless and futile pursuit of and control of false gods to submit to him. He made the heavens and the earth, after all. He would be the logical one to worship. And God calls humans to escape the futility and the frustration and the fear of living in bondage to false gods. However, as we've said over and over again, God never forces us to do anything. He patiently and lovingly and kindly waits for us to choose him. Verse 16, In past generations he allowed the nations to walk in their own ways. In other words, God allowed humans to reject him. And this is what happened in the, to the people of, in Lystra. Their ancestors from generations past had walked in their own ways, and even though they could look at creation and know that there was a God out there who was powerful enough to crush them because he made all that exists, they chose to ignore him. And instead, they chose to worship the things that God had created. This way, they could manage their lives as they saw fit. And their ancestors spiraled out of control, creating myths of Zeus and Hermes, which did nothing but keep them in bondage and fear. And this is the state of many tribes and, and language groups around the world. And yet God did not leave them without witness to his goodness and his provision and his love. Verse 17. He provided for your needs. He sent rain from heaven, caused your crops to grow and bear fruit. He satisfied your hearts with, with gladness the good things that you enjoy, Paul's saying, they are really gifts from this creator God. Why does God do all this for you? Because he wants you to turn to him. God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. You know, God gets such a bad rap, especially in our culture today. People say that he's so judgmental, so brutal, so unmerciful, so unloving. You hear those, right? They say this because they watch people get sick and they die. They read the Old Testament and they don't understand it. They, they read those parts where God seems really, really uh, angry and he destroys people for being wicked. But they refuse to see how gracious God is in providing rain and sun and food and drink and how loving God is in sending his son to die for us, how patient God is in allowing us to choose what we want even if it's not in our best interest and even if it leads us far away from him. God is so kind and generous with us, always waiting for us to turn to him. His kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. But why doesn't Paul mention Jesus here? Was he preaching another gospel? Did he miss his opportunity? I believe that Paul had to start somewhere in this city who had no concept of the God of the Old Testament nor the fact that they were sinners in need of salvation. And so Paul had to start somewhere 
If they would have come to an understanding of the good things they enjoyed, that they came from God and, and not from their idols and false gods, and, and they want a relationship with him, then Paul, I'm sure, would, would have gone on to explain that Jesus was another gift that he's given to them, right? Not to t- and God in his kindness to send Jesus to help them, to save them, not to test them so that he could, but to save them from the fertility of worshiping idols. But Paul never got to that point. The crowds were too worked up. And it says that even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people. And then those pesky Jews from Iconium, the ones that they just left from which Paul had just fled, they came and they put poisonous thoughts into this crowd as well. And as a result of the, pers- of the persuasion, the persecution, the very same crowds that were going to worship him one day flipped. And they stoned Paul, dragged him out of the city, and they left him for dead. We'll get to more of that story later. But this is a crazy story. There's a lot going on in here. This crowd worshipped Paul and Barnabas one moment because they thought it would be to their benefit, and then they attempted to murder them the next because they didn't get what they wanted. And as I consider this passage in light of the times we're in, um, I have two points of application to close up today. Number one, count the cost, and number two, speak the truth in love. We're going to look at count the cost for a minute. It seems that we lose more and more of the freedom that we used to have as the weeks and months pass by. And so I felt a need to pose this question to us. And it's a question that the apostles had already answered when they were hunted down and stoned. But I pose this question of love and compassion, concern for us as a flock. When it comes to our walk with Jesus, our decision to follow him, have we counted the cost? Will we follow Jesus no matter what? Especially when things don't go as planned, or when things get tough, or when things don't turn out rosy and peachy, when we're hunted instead of hailed. Listen to what Luke recorded Jesus as saying in his gospel, Luke chapter 14, verse 27 to 33. Jesus said this, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes with 20,000? And if not, while the other is a great way off, he sends out a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, said Jesus, any one of you who does not renounce all he has cannot be my disciple. I can't tell you the last time I've heard a message preached on this not-so-enjoyable saying of Jesus. It's a difficult saying. Jesus doesn't sound so compassionate or kind in that situation, does he? What he, sounds, sound, what he says sounds actually rather kind of rough and difficult. But there are many places in the Gospels where Jesus did not give his, God, his disciples a feel-good message. It was a simple message, repent, believe, follow me, but it was not a comfortable message. It was not a, a risk-averse message. It was not a safety-first message. It was a count-the-cost message. And Paul and Barnabas had counted the cost long before they left Antioch. 
this Holy Spirit had called them to preach the gospel of salvation into an evil and violent and dark world where there was going to be opposition and suffering. In fact, Jesus had promised that opposition and suffering would most assuredly be in Paul's future when he encountered him on the road to Damascus. These men understood the risk. They calculated the danger. They had counted the cost, and they obeyed Jesus anyway. And Jesus said that if we're not willing to lay it all on the line, that we don't have any business being his disciple. Now, what does he mean by that? Those are, those are such strong words, right? If we're honest with ourselves, we struggle with that level of commitment. It is all or nothing. There's no insurance policy. There's no complete satisfaction or your money back. Jesus calls us to be all in. What if we can't do that? What if we cannot renounce all that we have? What if, what if? And then we don't stop with the what ifs. We, re, we, we move on to the what abouts, right? Like, what about grace, right? That doesn't sound very gracious. What about love? What about my dreams? How can Jesus' statement be gracious and loving and kind? Think about it, though. God's grace meant giving up the glories of heaven to live on a sin-filled, violent planet. God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. God's love toward us required the death of his only son. What Jesus said is full of grace and kindness and love. We don't get to define grace and kindness and love. God does. His definition is very different than ours. And counting the cost is being able to see the value and the reality of God's spiritual blessings granted to us through Jesus. And here's what it meant for Paul to count the cost. If they ruin my reputation and smear my name, I will rest in my identity as a child of God and a disciple of Jesus. If I don't have a beautiful home and a luxurious transportation, I will be content with the spiritual riches that God has given to me. If they put me in prison and beat me, I will consider it a privilege to be treated as Jesus was treated. If they will harass me and, and stir up verbal opposition against me, I will not stop preaching about the one who calls me his beloved son. If they plot to stone me and I cannot escape in time, I will continue to trust that Jesus is good and that he's in control of my life and nothing happens outside of his will. And if they take everything from me, I will rejoice that my God has granted me everything I need for life and godliness and even death. The Apostle Peter wrote a letter to a number of churches about this very topic. And he was encouraging the churches who were under persecution to remain strong and to count the cost. If you want to, turn to 1 Peter chapter 1 with me. Peter's been through quite a bit of persecution himself. 1 Peter chapter 1, I'm going to read verse 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for the sprinkling of his grud, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now that's a handful, that's, a, that's quite an introduction, right? He calls them exiles. They were fleeing from opposition and persecution. These are the people that he's writing to. In accordance to the foreknowledge of God. This means that God knew it was going to happen, and he graciously and lovingly allowed it. How can Peter even put grace and peace and persecution all in the same sentence? 
Because persecution is received, as he says, in the sanctification of the Spirit, meaning it is for the purpose of setting us apart, making us holy, purifying our souls, conforming us to the image of Jesus, and for the purpose of being obedient to Jesus Christ. You see, the Father allows difficulty and persecution and trial so that we mature. Just like the storm that came through this weekend. Trees mature and they get stronger and they go deeper as the storms of life come through. Listen to what Peter wrote right after he wrote this really kind of interesting introduction. He says this, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last Time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, the, obtaining the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. That's such a passage. We're born again to a living hope. This is true of us. We have an inheritance that it cannot be taken away. We are guarded through faith for eternal salvation. The blessings are real and they're precious, more precious than gold, and they have, we have received them all through faith. The outcome of our faith is salvation of our souls. So counting the cost is coming to terms with how real this relationship with Jesus really is is. I mean, do we look at Jesus as a Sunday morning golfing buddy who we call up a couple times a week for five minutes just to check in and see how things are going? Because if that's all he is to us, he's not interested. Jesus saved us from imminent death. He washed us from the sins that diseased and clung to us. He purchased us from the slave block of Satan. He adopted us into his family as his own. And with all that he did for us, we should not just be content to relegate him to simply a buddy, a friend, or an acquaintance. He is the most important relationship in our lives. He is our Savior. He's our Lord. He's our God. He's our Rescuer. And being a disciple is about living in the reality of all that he's done for us. It is saying along with Peter, though we have not seen him, though we do not now see him, we believe in him and rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory. And Peter's encouragement to believers who were under fire, under pressure of being censored and maligned and persecuted for the sake of Jesus was this. Think of all that Jesus did for us and all that he gave us. He left heaven and glory and power and majesty and life and light to come to earth in poverty and weakness and darkness and humility and service and death for us. If we count the cost for us, it's nothing compared to what it cost him. Love so amazing, so divine, so extravagant, so sublime demands my soul, my life, my all. Jesus didn't do all of that so he could be a weekend friend. He did it all so that we could be forever by his side. God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. It is important for us to take time to appreciate what it costs Jesus and to come to terms with what it could cost us. If you're under pressure, being maligned, being mistreated, take courage from the promises of God's word and from the perspective and experience of Peter and Paul. 
those who walked and talked with Jesus. And he is oh so worth it. He is so worthy of our love. He's so worth whatever it costs us. And then the last thing, very shortly, I just want to talk about, speak the truth in love. Notice that Paul does not begin his message with these folks in this pagan city calling out their wickedness and condemning their idolatry and their sinfulness. Instead, he begins with the goodness and kindness and provision of God the Creator. Paul appeal, Paul's appeal began with common ground. Everyone benefits from the goodness and kind provision and this, from this generous Creator God who provides rain and food and crops and water. And he says, now let me tell you about him. And I'm convinced that if Paul's crowd had turned to this benevolent and gracious God, then he would have introduced them to Jesus, his best gift ever. God's greatest and most precious gift to mankind, given to us so that we could be saved from the futility of sin and idolatry. And perhaps we can learn from Paul's approach. You know, Christians are quite often considered condemning and judgmental by the unsaved world. As Paul modeled, though, perhaps we don't need to be condemning in our presentation of the gospel. Jesus said this concerning the Holy Spirit. When he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. The Holy Spirit is the one who convicts. He's the one who condemns, not us. All people need to hear that they are loved by their creator and that their creator provided a way to be in relationship with him. And listen to how Paul advised his disciple Timothy. Paul said this to Timothy, <clears throat> The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, like our God is. Kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. May God perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth of Jesus. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Kindness, gentleness, love, in the hopes that it leads to repentance and a knowledge of the truth of Jesus. The end game of proclaiming the gospel is not that we prove that we are right and someone else is wrong. It's not for us to convict and to condemn. The end game of presenting the gospel to people is to show them the love and the kindness of God through Jesus so that they repent and they believe, so that, that they, get, uh, they get saved and they are freed from their sins. Be prepared to speak the truth about God and the truth of the gospel with love and kindness as good ambassadors of God, knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead people to repentance. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this morning that we could gather together and hear your word. We thank you for the examples of Paul and Barnabas and Peter and Silas and all these folks in the book of Acts who went through such difficult things. Thank you for Peter's encouragement. Thank you for the reminder that uh, from Jesus, Lord God, that we would count the cost. I pray that each one in this room would, that we would understand what lengths Jesus went through so that we could have salvation, so that we could have a family, so that we could be adopted by the Almighty God. This is nothing little. It's huge. We thank you for bringing us into your family. And Lord God, just encourage us with those words and help us to live as people who truly believe that, that we are your children and that you do rule this world and that we have nothing to fear. 
And we've counted the cost because you're also worth it. As we turn now to, to remember what Jesus did, I, God, I pray that you would sustain us and fill us and that your spirit would encourage our hearts as we do this together. In Jesus' name, amen.